Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board gaming. I'm your host, Albert. And I'm Julius, the new co-host. And this is episode 75, Forbidden Dangers. Alright, welcome everybody, welcome back. Uh, this is an exciting show, really exciting, lots of stuff going on. First of all, you heard there's a new co-host. I'd like to introduce Julius. Hey. Hello everybody, I'm Julius Besser, a member of the guild. I'm excited to be become a new co-host for the One Player Podcast. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. This is awesome because it's hard doing a show by yourself, especially when you don't really have time to game socially. Obviously, I don't have time for gaming solitaire either, much less recording a show. So this this will help out a lot. The show will be more regular, probably a lot better. Um, it'll probably be a lot more dynamic with a lot more interplay between yeah. Albert and me, so it'll probably be a lot more fun to listen to. That's right. That, that's totally true. So it should just be all around better. I'm really looking forward to this. Um... And to inaugurate our new co-host, we made a new domain name. That's right. We got a new domain name, OnePlayerPodcast.com. It's about time that's been done, and um, it's it's already there. You can already start uh, going to that to subscribe to the show if you want to change. You don't have to change if you want to keep the old uh, FrightTheLoon at Podbean.com for whatever reason. But if if anything, I will only support the other one going forward. Not that I expect any changes. At the end of the show, there's new contact emails also. Going along with the new domain name. Um, I'd also like to, to shout out to Mikolaj and say thanks for the donation you sent. That was fantastic. I really appreciate it. That helps us a lot. Um, and it's just really nice knowing, knowing folks who are listening and folks care about the show. So thank you. We love getting feedback of any type. You guys can write us, email us, call us. And we especially thank Mikolaj for his donation. So let's jump into the news. So first up for the news is the designer of Battle at Kemble's Cascade, which is a game where you are a spaceship running through a arcade game, essentially, blowing up spaceships and collecting points until you meet the boss. The designer, Ollie Tillen, have started a blog with new special solo scenarios for the game, and these are available at boardgamegeek.com slash blog slash 4209, or there's a link to it from the Battle at Kemble's Cascade page. Essentially, these uh, solo scenarios are puzzles with a set layout and objective at the end. For the first one, which the designer is calling Ragnarok, he sets a the goal is just to get as high a score as possible, although the goals will change from scenario to scenario. The designer, Ollie Tilland, welcomes player to post any solutions you find to his blog, but please use spoiler tags, and he expects to find a really good solution, and I hope it's one of the members of our guild who gives it to him. <laughs> right, um... Next up, the next episode, I'm going to be doing another roundtable about the print-and-play solitaire design contest. Just like last year, there's going to be a Google Hangouts, so you're welcome to come and watch and post questions that can be answered live. Um, I will include the links in the show note. That'll be the next episode. It's going to be getting. It will be recorded live on uh, Saturday the 14th at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. And that show is going to be with Chris Hansen, Jake Staines, Todd Sanders, and Ryan Mays. Now, unfortunately, I'm not going to actually be able to attend this one, so Albert's going to be uh, chairing that one. But yep. the podcast will be available. The, the but the recording will be available for anyone who wants to listen after the fact on the podcast. That's right. As well as if you want to watch it after the fact on YouTube, you'll be able to do that. In other news, the Board Game Geek Golden Geek Awards are completed, and there was a special new category this year for solo games. 
The winner of this one was Imperial Settlers, and the first runner-up was Legendary Encounters, an alien deck-building game, and the third runner-up was Pandemic the Cure by Matt Laycock, who we're actually going to be interviewing later on in the show. Now, I personally was surprised by having Imperial Settlers come in for a win, but I'm hoping yeah. at one point in time we can get a good review of it up on this podcast. Yeah, I, that's surprised. I've only played it once, Solitaire, and it didn't really click for me, but I know there's now a uh, there's a new scenario for it to play at Solitaire. It's supposed to be much better. Moving into Kickstarter news, a new Kickstarter has launched for a game called Cannibal Squares, which is solo appropriate. It's a co-op game, a pure co-op, where the players are all stuck on a cannibal island trying to build an SOS sign, all attempting to move around the board and collect enough resources to be able to build the signs and fend off zombies with a very basic dice combat setup. The pledge level for the game starts at $40, and you can go ahead and back it if you're interested. Another Kickstarter game um, launching March 3rd is Airborne Commander. This is a solitaire deck-building game. There's actually going to be a launch party on March 3rd if you're in... I believe it's in Indiana. It's at Books and Brews, and you can find booksandbrews.com and find out where it's at. It'll be at 6.30 p.m. March 3rd. This is a solitaire deck-building game, like I mentioned. It is, You're playing... a Allied soldiers trying to fight the Germans, and the the game has really nice like it looks like it's a watercolor style of art that I really liked. Don't have any information yet on the price of that or anything like that. The uh, another Kickstarter game is Plague: Land of the Dead. This is a cooperative zombie zombie game. It's for two to five players. Players are survivors trying to find a cure for a zombie outbreak by traveling through a city. You're looking for different parts of the cure to put it together to defeat the zombies. This one is currently on Kickstarter. It still has another 40 days or so, and you could get in on that for about $25. One final Kickstarter game currently on Kickstarter, one that I'm personally very interested in, Between Two Cities, a tile-laying game where you work with your partners to your left and your right trying to build a city between each of you. So it's a mix of cooperative and competitive. You have to have the best, lowest-scoring city to be able to win the game. Uh... Developed by Stonemeyer Games, who also published Euphoria and Viticulture. Now, they have a special $150,000 goal for an Automa deck so that the game can be played solo, which is being developed by Morton Peterson, who is actually one of the guild members, the soloist there. It's $29 for the base game, and I fully expect it's going to blow past that goal in no time. So if you're interested in picking up an interesting solo game, feel free to check it out on Kickstarter. That's right, and it's also worth noting that Morden also designed the Atama for Viticulture, didn't he? Yes, he did. That's right. Uh, another item of news, um, the Game Hostage Negotiator by Van Ryder Games. That is being really close to being complete if you kickstarted, or if you didn't and you want to get it. It should be available in the next few months. There's a bit of a delay because the dice had to be worked. They were, they were a little bit large originally, and they're more manageable size now. Um, now, AJ recently decided that the first two expansions to the game are going to be available sooner than they originally planned. They're going to be out a week or two after the game, so if you didn't back those, you'll be able to get them shortly after the game. Once I have better dates, I'll let you know when it's available retail. And if you did not get the the expansions, you could probably start pre-ordering it now. And also, if you missed on the Kickstarter, you're able to both pre-order the expansions and the, the, the you're able to pre-order the expansions and the game itself from his website. That's awesome. All right, and that's it for the news. And now I'm going to be talking to Matt Laycock about his game currently on Kickstarter, Thunderbirds. I'm here with Matt Laycock, the designer of the upcoming game Thunderbirds, and also the designer of a number of other games that have 
topped on the solo charts. Matt, do you mind introducing yourself? Sure, I'm Matt Leacock, and I'm a game designer. So what games have you designed recently? So, let's see, recently, um, well, the, the current project is Thunderbirds. Uh, recently, though, I've been working on different extensions to Pandemic and uh, uh, designed Forbidden Desert, which is a sequel to Forbidden Island. So, one of the things we want to talk to you about is some of your other recent games. I know that the um, People's Choice Top 100 solo games recently concluded, and all four of four of your games, Pandemic, Forbidden Island, Forbidden Desert, and Pandemic the Cure, all appear pretty highly on that list. Pandemic, in fact, was number 10 on that list. Uh, what was your feeling about that? Well, I'm always uh, excited to see that uh, people are playing the game and, and voting it up, so it, that was a great thing to, to see the, the nominations and the awards. Did you expect that your games would be so popular solo? Solo is always kind of an interesting trick. Uh, when we designed, or actually when I designed Pandemic, we marketed it for two to four players because it's a cooperative game, kind of, kind of like the essence of it, but they do end up being pretty interesting solitaire games, even though they're not marketed as such. Is there some reason why you decided not to market them as such, or just it wasn't an idea at the time? Well, I think at the time, you know, co-ops were relatively new, and uh, when you're, you're talking about that, the you know, the engine and the, the crux of the game is really about cooperation, and you, and you market it, or you, you know, you put a, a solitaire um, thing on the box, it, it can be a little confusing, or at least that was the concern when uh, the game came out, you know, when it did back in 2007. Now I think you could easily put a, a solitaire um, option on the on the box and people would get it. So you feel it's not a concern anymore. Are you intending on doing that with Thunderbirds? Uh, yeah, I'd like to I'd like to include a solitaire option for the game because I do know it's a it's a popular way to play and uh, we've had some demand for it. So I'll be looking into that. Okay, I'm sure that's definitely a good thing for a number of our listeners to hear. Is there some reason why you decided not to include a solo option in Pandemic: The Cure? Your most recent game? Uh, well. The- Let's see. So I think I'll be looking at it for uh, if we if we do decide to do an expansion for Pandemic, that'll definitely be one of the things I'll be evaluating. For the base sets, I typically try to keep the rules really tight, uh, keep it to just the the core game, make it as accessible as possible. Um, so it didn't it didn't really uh, hit the the core product requirements, um, but uh, I do know that it is a popular option. So. Uh, I'll be looking at it for an expansion if if we do decide to go forward with an expansion for the cure. Okay. What do you think would lean into your decision about making expansion for the cure? Oh, well, I just got to talk with Z-Man and see what the demand for it is and see if we can work it into their publishing schedule. Um, there's certainly interest on my part. I've got a number of roles already in the in the works. Well, speaking of pandemic the cure, let me ask you a little bit about your design for the game. Okay. Sure. What when you were changing over Pandemic to The Cure, you were changing over essentially a action selection game to a dice selection game. How hard was that transition? Um, it wasn't all that difficult, really. Uh, it was a fun challenge to try to figure out. I mean, the first thing was sort of like, okay, the challenge I laid out for myself was how to design Pandemic without a board, how to abstract that away so that you're focusing on on dice and, and trying to eliminate everything that I could to reduce the play length and, and make it easier to set up and, and so on. So I'm trying to think where the, the core difficulty was. It's really about balance more than anything. Um, you kind of feel your way through the design as, as you're doing it. Um, so 
I, you know, the, fir the first challenge was around abstraction, and uh, then it was really about getting roles that were interesting and balanced, um, and then trying to ensure that there was enough tension. So um, I don't know if that answers your question. So the difficulty was in balancing the roles, or the difficulty was in balancing the game? You know, with the cure, it was it was one of those games where I I wrote up a, a design brief. You know, it needed to be a dice game. It needed to be easy to set up. It needed to play in a half an hour, and then it was just a very very long series of incremental improvements and changes. So there wasn't any huge spike in difficulty when it came to the design. It was a it was a very long design. Um, uh, you know, calendar wise, I, I I spent a long time on it. But there wasn't any real big spikes in, oh my god, how am I going to do this? It was more like continual refinement and polishing. I think I pitched the game to Z-Man you know, over two years ago. It may be close to three. And they were ready to publish it then uh, because it was, it was playing really well. But I, I kept, uh, kept refining it and polishing it over the, over the years that were available to me because of when it was slated to, slated to get published. And now you said you were designing further expansions for the Cure. Possibly? Yeah, you know, often when you're when you're designing these things, you've got ideas that didn't fit into the base game. Um, some of the stuff uh, from On the Brink uh, was uh, left over from the base game. Some of the uh, certainly um, some of the the things from the Cure were were cut out just to to make the the package nice and tight. So there's uh, there were leftover roles. Um, not that they weren't uh, good roles. It's just that you want to come up with a <clears throat> a nice balanced set that um, has different elements um, and just feels well-rounded. Yeah, of course, there's a, a limit to the number of dice you can put in, in a game before the cost gets exorbitant. So it'll be fun to try to take some of those remaining ideas as things that we couldn't capture, like the, the solitaire game and additional roles, etc., and, and uh, package those up. Are you thinking about doing additional design elements like you had for in the lab? Don't know. Um, there's a lot of different ideas building around. Um, just gonna see what uh, uh, what really what really works well and what would make a, a good product and what people would, would get into. So I'm not not leaving anything off the table right now, but uh, also don't have anything ready to announce. Understood. And do you feel that Pandemic: The Cure was a success as design? Oh yeah, yeah. I was very, very. I was extremely pleased with the uh, the production. I'm very happy with the play balance. Very happy with the way it was received. The press has been good. So, yeah, all around, uh, very, very happy with it. Do you think that The Cure appeals to a different audience than Pandemic? Yeah, uh, my thought was you could play Pandemic the board game, and then if you love it and you want to introduce your, uh, say, your casual game playing or non-game playing uh, friends and family, you'd have a product that you could put on the table that would be less intimidating, that you could uh, get up and running on um, even faster and it'd be a great uh, gateway into the gateway as it were uh, you know a way to introduce people to the game and also uh, I like it as a, a travel edition so if you want something you can set up quickly even play it on a plane um, you can uh, you can grab that one have you played it on a plane <laughs> I play that thing everywhere yeah I think I have played <laughs> it on a plane yeah I'm going to move into a different one of your games, Forbidden Island and Forbidden Desert, which we're actually going to be reviewing later in the show. When, How did you design starting off from Pandemic and getting to Forbidden Island and later Forbidden Desert? What was the process? Sure. I, I, well, I was contacted by GameRight. Um, they were interested in doing a uh, cooperative game, a cooperative uh, card game for kids, and uh, wanted to kind of uh, 
bottle up some of the magic of, um, you know, the, the tension and energy you get out of the pandemic, try to find some way to, to make that accessible to a wider audience, you know, obviously in a different game. So um, originally it was sort of just a card game. And I found that uh, turning the, the cards over was difficult in the center of the table. So those gradually morphed into tiles and the, the product sort of took on a, its own new life as a board game at a certain point. So it was, uh, they reached out to me and, and were, were looking for a you know, more accessible co-op game, thought that there was a good market for it. So I put that together and um, that was uh, very successful. And down the line, uh, they saw an opportunity to grab people who had played Forbidden Island and wanted something a little deeper uh, to do a, you know, to do a sequel that would provide more depth than uh, the base game. When you were designing Forbidden Desert, it has a sort of different level of production to it. That little, the little desert ship, almost the toy that comes with the game, Mm -hmm. such things weren't really present in some of your other games like Pandemic. Was that intentional to have that be in Forbidden Desert? Yeah, a lot of thought went into that. So I was really delighted with the way GameRight came up with the um, the four treasure tokens from Forbidden Island. The uh, the crystal fire in particular, it looks so, it just looks tasty. You kind of almost want to eat it. Uh, they're really fun to play with. And I watched um, uh, kids really manipulating these things a lot. Uh, you, they pick them up, play with them. People are always putting, uh, say, the earth stone inside of the ocean chalice and stacking them and really, you know, playing with them like they're toys. And so when Forbidden Desert came around, um, I really wanted to find some way that you could snap them together and uh, even provide greater purpose for them. And so that's where the the airship came from. But we tried other things. Initially, it was like four pieces that you could assemble to create an interlocking key. I think I tried uh, other types of machinery. So it was a a fun... uh, I guess it was sort of an industrial design exercise of a, of a toy, which was new for me. So let me ask you about designing just in general. What would you say is your, is your favorite mechanic for game design? Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I enjoy lots of different mechanisms and combining them in different ways. I don't really have a, a favorite so much. I, I think I am always interested in finding ways to add um, escalating tension to a game. I like I like them to play out with a, a good arc, a good story arc, you know, where you get drawn deeper and deeper and get more and more excited as the game unfolds. So anything that uh, anything that can help with that is, is, is high on my list. What's your favorite mechanic for playing? Well, I mean, if you, if you looked at the games that I've been playing recently uh, as a proxy for favorite i I don't know what my favorite is i play a lot of deck builders these days so it's probably some sort of deck building uh, mechanism would be my my current favorite but i'm fickle i I do like to try a lot of different stuff any thoughts to designing your own deck builder that seems like kind of a daunting thing i'm also kind of looking to see you know what's next Uh, i'm not really looking to build another uh, worker placement game or a deck builder just because they're the rage Um, if there's a a concept that really grabs me, I might dig a little deeper, but it's it's not top of my list. So, transitioning to Thunderbirds, Modifius reached out to you originally? Yeah, Chris Birch set up a, a meeting um, at uh, Spiel at Essen, I guess this is in 2013, and wanted to kind of pitch this idea of a 
a cooperative game version of Thunderbirds, and I had never actually watched the show, so... Um, but he described it to me, and there was so much enthusiasm behind his eyes, so, like, this is something he really, really loved that I told him I'd check it out. So I went home and watched a lot of the... watched a lot of the TV episodes, watched uh, one of the movies, checked out the source books, and uh, even got uh, hardbound book comics, and really began to see... You know why people are really into the into the show, and also saw that it would make a great cooperative game. I mean, it's like um, it's just perfect for a co-op game. It's a team of people who are running around dealing with horrible situations together. Um, so it, it seemed like a great fit, so I signed up. So, how familiar are you with the Thunderbirds show at this point in time? <laughs> no, I'm very familiar with with the show. Yeah, having what? watched nearly nearly all the episodes, and uh, yeah. I, I've uh, really had to dig in deep. So with the game, were you trying to evoke the theme of international rescue or just simply the general idea of dealing with crises? No, it's really important that it captured the the spirit of the show. Um, I think there's two things that are important there. One is that it feel like Thunderbirds, like uh, all the, everything in the game needs to kind of communicate, uh, not just the look and feel of the show, but really the spirit of it. So even down to the, the bonuses that are in the game, you know, they're about teamwork and um, determination and all the different things that these positive character characteristics that the, the characters uh, embody. Um, so it was important to really kind of bring that through. The other thing is leaving it open enough so that the players feel like they're writing their own stories and not just kind of being dragged through a storyline. So every time you play, a different series of missions comes out and a different... Uh, the hood has got a different scheme each time, and so you feel like you're kind of writing a, a season of the show as you're playing each time. Were you also attempting to bring out the theme of the individual characters? Sure, yeah. I mean, everybody's got their own favorite uh, uh, member of International Rescue, and so you can you can either grab that character or you can randomly choose one and, and uh, see sort of what the team dynamics are for any given different mix of characters. So the the bad guy of the Thunderbirds, the Hood, who's he? Uh, the Hood is a, a evil criminal mastermind who's always trying to. He creates a lot of uh, uh, disasters around the world, trying to trap the international rescue and revealing their secrets so he can take photographs of the other vehicles and sell them to the highest bidder. So, and he's got some strange uh, uh, mental powers that uh, you can hypnotize people and so on. So he is sort of the um, he embodies sort of the, the strategic arc of the game. You're you're running around the the board dealing with all these local emergencies, which is the tactical aspect of the game, gathering up uh, different bonuses through experience. So you're kind of like developing character, as it were, and then you use that to foil the overall hood scheme, which is like the the overall game clock. And if you can foil the scheme, then you win the game. How do you foil the scheme? Well, he's he's uh, laid some traps. Uh, so there's three different uh, disasters, pending disasters, waiting to happen. If you can avert those from happening, all three of them, then you win the game. And you you do that by uh, uh, showing enough. You know, if you show enough determination in in Europe, uh, while at the same time showing enough technical knowledge in Africa or, or what have you. Basically, it's a it's a big coordination exercise. The team has to get together and and work to uh, uh, to foil or I should say avert any of these disasters from happening. So you said you use the Thunderbird vehicles to avert these disasters. 
what exactly are the Thunderbird vehicles and what do they do? Well, there's sort of like two different classes. There's um, the uh, the main vehicles, each each of the characters in the game. Uh, Scott, Virgil, Alan, Gordon, John, and Lady Penelope. Each uh, each have their own vehicle associated with them, whether it's Thunderbird 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, or, or Fab 1. Um, so those are the main ones that the, the characters run around the world in. Uh, but there's also pod vehicles that Thunderbird 2 can pick up and deliver. So you might have the Mole, which is a a vehicle that can dig underground, or the uh, Firefly, which shoots uh, nitroglycerin pellets that can snuff out fires, etc. So you can take those to uh, different uh, areas where missions are happening in order to give you bonuses to uh, your rescue. So both the the primary vehicles and the pod vehicles are, are in the game. So what's your favorite vehicle? Oh, it's got to be Thunderbird 2, no question. <laughs> And do you also prefer to play that one in the game? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, one of the nice things is, regardless of which character you are, you can drive any of the different vehicles. You perform a little bit better if you're in your own vehicle. Um, so Thunderbird 1 is also really fun to fly around because you can actually fly anywhere on Earth for a single action, so you feel very uh, powerful in, in that regard. And then, uh, obviously, Thunderbird 4 is very good at sea rescues and... Thunderbird 5 is good at manipulating uh, cards in the in the hood scheme. So they, they all have their own benefits. A lot of the time you've been mentioning how the game really evokes the theme of Thunderbirds. But some of our listeners have never heard of Thunderbirds or have no nostalgia for it. Is the game still going to be interesting to them? Yeah, I think it will. Uh, one of the things, you know, living in the States is that most of my playtesters have never heard of the show. And uh, one of the things that's been really rewarding is watching kids and, and adults and families playing the game, having again, having no idea uh, who these characters are and really still getting into it. So that uh, it, it was actually a pretty good mix of playtesting because we, we did a lot of blind testing in the UK with uh, diehard fans who could call out inconsistencies or incoherent things you know, with the show and make sure that you know we, we don't put anything in there that that doesn't fit. But at the same time, over here, I can I can test it with people who don't know anything about the show and ensure that it's engaging, even if you you know it wasn't something from your past. And you've had a lot of success with those playtesters. Yeah, yeah, I've been testing um, uh, with a lot of families around the area uh, and and friends. You know, it's it, like I said, um, my my personal network here did not uh, grow up with the show, so there there hasn't been a lot of uh, folks. Who were uh, who were big fans of it uh, that I've been uh, for for some of the playtests and, and it has been going over very well with them. Let's talk about how the game works. What are the mechanics of the game? Um, let's see. So it's a in gamer terms, it's an action point allowance system. So you get uh, three actions to spend each turn. And you can uh, spend those on moving, uh, going to a, an area where there's a mission, or you can spend it on rescuing. Those are the two primary things. Um, so you move somewhere uh, in order to solve a, a mission. Um, in order to solve the mission, you do the rescue action. You roll your dice, and uh, you need to meet the difficulty number of the mission. If you do that, then you succeed, and you get uh, a payout. So each, each solved mission or, or completed mission pays out in sort of like uh, teamwork or determination, uh, these different types of bonus chips that you can then spend on future missions or you can spend to, to help foil the, the hood scheme. 
So it's in a sense you're running around and and completing missions, and you're doing that for two reasons. One is if you don't complete a mission in time, the missions will run out of time, and then you'll lose the game uh, because you've you're not uh, living up to your end of the bargain as a as international rescue. Um, and you also do that to collect these bonus chips that you can uh, use to foil the overall uh, scheme that the hood is trying to trigger. So if you can turn those those cards in or those chips in, you can um, uh, solve or uh, avert those disasters. And if you can avert all the disasters in the, the hood's track, then you win the game. That's sort of a, a broad brush overview of it. So again, you're doing dealing with these local emergencies, which are the missions that appear each turn, um, and then having to deal with the the overall uh, disasters that the hood is is planning. So you have both missions that you have to deal with and disasters that you have to deal with. That's right, yeah. The missions are sort of like the day-to-day operations that International Rescue has to deal with around the world. You know, Timmy's trapped in a mine in Australia, or uh, the Empire State Building has just fallen over, and uh, there's some reporters that are trapped underground. You need to rescue them. They have nothing to do with the hood. You know, you just have to go, uh, you know, it's your mission is basically to to provide uh, help when all other means have failed. So you, you travel on the, around the world dealing with that, but at the same time, um, the hood has cooked up these disasters to trap you, and uh, so you use your experience doing your day-to-day missions to, to gather enough uh, of these character attributes in order to, um, to, to foil his scheme. So tell me about the dice. How do you actually solve the missions? So to um, complete a mission, you, you go to the, the region uh, where it's happening. Say it's um, uh, say it's something in Europe, um, and uh, you then uh, look at the difficulty number. It, maybe it's a, a terrible, uh, really really hard thing. You need to you need to get a ten, for example. You need to it's the perils of Penelope. You need to rescue Penelope. Uh, and uh, so you roll two dice and you need to get a 10 or better. Well, sometimes that's pretty hard. The uh, the dice are numbered 1 through 5, and each of them have a, a hood symbol on it. Um, so you roll your two dice, and if you hit that number, then you succeed. If you if you miss, then you fail. So the, the trick is um, trying to bring enough bonuses into the... Um, in order to, to complete the mission. So each card has different bonuses. Like you might... if you If you brought Fab 1... Uh, you might get a plus two or plus three bonus if you if it's a and each mission has a different type. It might be a land mission or an air mission or a space mission. If you bring a character that's good at those types of missions, you get another bonus. So you're basically trying to maximize the number of bonuses that you can add to your role. And the the crux of the game is really this trade-off. You can run to these different mission locations and try to complete the missions quickly at bad odds or you can spend a lot of time trying to assemble exactly the team you need in order to get great odds, but you know that's time-consuming. So there's a lot of trade-offs between um, avoiding risk and uh, you know taking more time, or uh, maybe pushing your luck a little bit at the expense of um, you know failing and having to try multiple times. And uh, if you keep trying and failing and trying and failing, the the likelihood of rolling one of those those hood silhouettes on your dice goes up, and each one of those advances the hood along his scheme. So you're taking too much time, you know, uh, on a, a specific rescue, and he he can advance his uh, evil scheme. So he he ticks along down his track and and triggers events and triggers disasters. And how does the hood advance? 
he advances one of two ways. So whenever you roll a, the rescue dice, if you roll a, a hood symbol, he'll advance one space on the track. And from time to time, at the, at the end of any, any given turn, you draw a mission card. And if the, the card uh, shows the hood advancing, he'll also move forward a space. Um, so at the end of every turn, you advance. You get a, um, either you get a new mission, which advances the mission track, which is the number of missions you need to complete, or advances the hood on the, the hood scheme track, which uh, marches him toward the end of the game. So how often are you going to be rolling those dice? Well, you have to roll them every time you uh, uh, want to complete a mission. So there's quite a bit of die rolling. Um, you can't really lose the game just because of one bad roll, right? There's, a, there's quite a few rolls in the game, and there's quite a few dice mis mitigation strategies. There's, there's chips that allow you to add to your result, and there's chips that allow you to re-roll. So it's kind of hard to blame the dice when you're playing because you're rolling them so many times, and there's so many different ways you can manipulate them. So it's not like a, uh, you know, oh, that game was spoiled by a bad roll type of game uh, because there's a, there's a fairly good curve given the, the high number of rolls, the number of different uh, dice mitigation um, you know, powers at your disposal. And do any of, the, any of the characters have automatic dice mitigation techniques? Uh, let's see. Um, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I've just been designing an expansion, so I'm trying to remember the base game. Uh, let's see, and all the different versions. There will be, let me put it that way. <laughs> Whether they're in the base game or not, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Um, well, there are characters that allow you to get, like Lady Penelope allows you to draw two intelligence tokens in uh, Europe, if she's in there, uh, and spends an action. And those can be spent to reroll a die. So if you've got intelligence chips in inventory, then you've got that ability. And then we're exploring some other options for Tintin. Tintin is actually the Hood's niece, so uh, she may have some natural resistance to his powers. Is Tintin in the in the base game? She will be in the expansion. So we just unlocked uh, the first expansion, which will include Tintin and Brains and Parker and their uh, their vehicles. So Tintin flies in the Ladybird jet, and uh, Parker has Fab Two, which is Lady Penelope's yacht. And uh, brains will come with a Tracy Island miniature, which will sit in the on the in the South Pacific and allow you to swap character pegs uh, in and out uh, from their sort of like their their main base. So, regarding this expansion, how do the expansions work? What comes with an expansion? Well, um, you can look at the Kickstarter page to kind of see what's going on with it, um, and that's continuing to evolve as things are unlocked. So there's the base game, which has the six main characters, uh, you know, Scott, Virgil, Alan, John, Lady Penelope, Gordon, um, and their, their vehicles, as I mentioned. The first expansion has got these three new characters, uh, Tintin, Brains, and Parker, along with Tracy Island, uh, Fab 2, and the Ladybird Jet. And there'll be missions that accompany them so that you can get the appropriate bonuses for those characters. Um, and I believe that expansion also comes with uh, molded plastic sculpts of the 10 uh, pod vehicles. So that, that's one component. There's another expansion that was just unlocked recently. This is all changing very, very quickly <laughs> as the uh, different levels are unlocked. That includes different mission vehicles. So each of the different episodes has got different uh, 
other types of equipment that that stars in the show, as it were. So uh, the, the crab logger uh, is one example, or the the fire flash, which uh, is the airplane that's in their first episode that they need to land safely in London. Um, so there'll be, uh, I believe it's eight or ten of those will ten. be. Is it ten? Okay, thanks. Uh, so the idea there is when you succeed in a mission with one of those pieces of mission equipment, you get that that uh, piece of equipment. So you get the nice sculpt, and that'll come along with some sort of special bonus that you can use to uh, help you out in a future mission. And Let's we also see. know we also we, know about expansion three as well. What's in, what's included in expansion three? There's one called leveling up, which I've been working on, which allows uh, you to. Uh, as you're completing these missions, one thing that I've noticed in playtests is watching people, instead of discarding the missions, they like to keep them. Um, they'll slide them underneath their roll card, like, you know, hey, I've got credit for this, I completed this mission. So I've seen that with some playtest groups, and actually work to find a way to make that fun and useful. So the idea behind the leveling up expansion is you collect the missions that you've, um, the ones that you've rolled and succeeded in go underneath your roll card, and then when you accumulate enough of them, you can turn them in and then level up your character to get even better character powers. So you'll start with like a level one uh, Virgil, and then you turn in n number of um, uh, mission cards, and you'll get level two Virgil. And so you may start out with powers that are slightly less powerful than the base games, uh, then level up into the base game power, and then you can level up one more time and get a, a pretty, pretty amazing character. So those would be coupled then with a... Um, level five uh, disaster pack so that you can make the hood scheme a little bit harder. So you can ramp up the difficulty of the overall game while uh, also having the opportunity to make your character stronger and stronger as the course of the game unfolds. Is that the first method that we have for ramping up the difficulty with the level five schemes? Yeah, that's the, well, I mean, the, the, baby, the base game will come with um, level one, level two, and level three scheme cards and you can mix those in different recipes in order to get four different difficulty levels so the level five cards will allow you to add uh, quite a bit more difficulty and i'll be working out the different recipes for those how difficult can the base game get well the legendary game is is um pretty difficult uh the uh the things you need to assemble for a level four card i, I think it's a you know three bonus chips in one region two in another and a couple different pieces of equipment in a third region so it uh, provides a, a pretty good challenge for people. Currently, you don't have any rules for solo play. What's your intention right now with regards to solo play? Uh, well, I need to do some development. I'm going to be working with uh, Rob Harris at Medifius. We're going to be um, uh, really digging into that. Uh, one thing that a lot of players have talked about wanting is the ability to switch roles during the course of play. So be looking to see how fun that is and how meaningful it is um, and how um, how we might work that in as, as one way to, to play the game. Um, you can certainly play it solo by playing multiple roles, but we want to go a little bit deeper than that. So it's, right now it's, it's in development. Are you also thinking about automating how the other roles work? Uh, what do you mean by automating? Um I'm familiar with some other games designs for solo play that use card systems or something else to automate how another player would be working. Are you thinking about doing such a design for the solo play in this game? Uh, it, hadn't, it hadn't come up yet. I, we can look into that a little bit, though. It's interesting. 
And is the solo, are you intending on having some sort of solo rules in the game, or is this a later unlock stretch goal? Uh, I think that's to be determined right now. I would like to get the solo game, um, the, the rules for solo play in the base set, uh, because I don't think it'll require any additional components, and there's enough demand for it, and I think people will understand it. So that's my personal goal, is to get that into the base game. Um, there's a chance that uh, the development isn't done in time and we put it into an expansion, but I think that likelihood is, is fairly low. Was the design of Thunderbirds inspired by any of your previous games? Well, I mean, there, you, you've always got, you always know what your back catalog is, and um, that can be a curse and a blessing. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to retread or, or repeat um, previous designs, so you know you start with what's fun uh i started with uh just kind of tinkering around with the vehicles i knew those would need to be front and center um and so it just kind of organically grew out of that um there's only so much you can do with um a board game though you know i needed to create a tension ramping system and have local you know short-term goals and longer-term goals and uh, the cards seem like the best way to drive that so I mean, you could you could compare it to other games that I've done in that they're card-driven and action point allowance systems, but the the game itself is actually a very different um, presents a, a different set of problems that are are unique to it. It's if, if you compare it to Pandemic, for example, in Pandemic, when you remove a disease cube, you remove a disease cube. <laughs> it just happens for an action. In in this game, it's really about all the trade-offs that you have to make around timing and uh, risk, and it it has a very different feel in that regard. With Thunderbirds, you were given a theme first, and you designed around that theme. With your previous designs, did you design theme first, or did you first think of mechanics? They kind of come like a, a, a pair. Uh, it's never really a theme first or mechanics first for me. It's usually uh, some sort of mechanism that that um, evokes a, a story or theme. I, I, I don't really enjoy doing design if it's just some random raw mechanism. It's usually got some sort of story hook in my brain when I'm starting uh, the design. So they come as a, kind of a couplet. Now I might trade off a theme for another once I've got that up and running. Um, Forbidden Island, for example, had I think three or four different themes attached to it. Uh, but initially there was always a story that kind of made those me mechanisms work. If I try to start with only a theme though, I usually run into trouble. Um, so this one, uh, I guess I, I, I had the the license, but when I started working on it, I immediately jumped into the mechanisms. So it, it's a complex, I guess, a complicated process. It's not just uh, one or the other at any time. Was your design focused on a certain level of gameplay? How complex of a game is this? We really want to make it as accessible as possible. And so, uh, you know, I'm really using Occam's razor a bit, uh, quite a bit, anything that doesn't uh, contribute to the, the gameplay in a, a dramatic way is getting chopped out. Um, it's one of the reasons I actually like expansions, because you can make the base set as pure and simple and accessible as humanly possible, um, and then offer an expansion to fans who really want something even more. So for the base set, um, you know, we, I was targeting something that was uh, in the difficulty or the compli I should say complexity level between Forbidden Island and, and uh, Pandemic, somewhere in there. Um, 
which I guess is a fairly wide range, but uh, certainly didn't want it to be more complicated than Pandemic, and it's Forbidden Island is so so pared down that it would be difficult to get it quite that simple. So that's where that's what I was looking for, um, trying to make it as easy to learn and easy to play as possible. It's still offering plenty of depth for gamers uh, to to play it over and over again. You know, like a classic gateway uh, uh, recipe. When you started the funding this on Kickstarter, and it's funding now, it was funded in under three hours. What was your reaction? To <laughs> well, that was great. <laughs> You know, you put these things up and you have no idea how they're going to go. I I was um, cautiously optimistic that we would make our goal relatively quickly, but I didn't think it would take three hours. That, that was that was great. And it's continued to fund fast. You guys keep knocking down stretch goals. How's that feel? It's it's really fun. So this is the one. I've, this is the first Kickstarter I've really followed very closely. Um, Roll through the ages. The Iron Age kickstarted. Uh, and I kind of watched that, but that was Tom Lehman's design, and it was, you know, it was nice. I knew it was going to work. This one, I've been, you know, like hitting the refresh page quite a bit. Um, <laughs> it's been, uh, it's been enjoyable to watch. And uh, we also, uh, uh, I opened up the the rules for the game, so it's been really fun to to communicate with um, people who are, you know, following the Kickstarter and really interested in the game and, and offering comments on on the way I've uh, presented presented things to make sure that. Everything is as clear as possible, and also just so that they get an idea of how the game unfolds and how it plays. Is opening up the rules something you think you'll do in the future? Uh, maybe. I think it's a nice fit for a Kickstarter when you, the game is not, you know, say 100% done. Um, this one, fortunately, it was, you know, very close to done. The rules were just in in uh, draft form. I think you have to be a little careful. I, I don't want to. I don't think I would want to do it if things were really open and in flux. There's a there's a certain kind of polishing phase where it makes sense but if your game is like 80% done which typically means it's like 40% done I think it could be pretty dangerous you might get a lot of design by committee and a lot of churn and a lot of questions and things but it was a really good fit for um, this game at this stage of development how done is Thunderbirds it has it's had a lot of playtesting oh yeah it's had a tremendous amount of playtesting Medifius was wonderful in that they actually uh, went out and they they built 20 different playtest kits, which is not something that I've ever done before. Sent them out to um, many different remote testers and got remote feedback, and we were able to collect that. And that's good for a number of reasons. One is you know you get fan, uh, feedback from fans, and um, also when you're not watching the game, you get more um, you get more objective feedback. So uh, we just got a, a lot of information from that, um, and then we've just been iterating like crazy. I, w- I went through and. Uh, collected some pieces for a for a photograph of the prototype pieces, and it was like I think it was like ten pounds of cards <laughs> that I had to, <laughs> I had produced over over the last uh, six months or so. So I felt like the game was just about done six months ago, and you know ever since then we've been continuing to iterate and, and polish. And uh, Rob Harris has been a great partner. Um, really, uh, you know, Rob Harris is a, a developer uh, with Medifius, so I've been working closely with him on uh, balance and really, you know, we just call everything into question. Is this necessary? Is this necessary? Is this tuned? Is this balanced? Uh, what about this? So it's been a really good process working with, with that company. So what does the game cost on Kickstarter right now? Well, on Kickstarter, the base game you can pick up for $62 US. And uh, by the time I think this airs, uh, 
the uh, expansions, all the expansions plus the base game will be $115. And is, are those going to be available in regular distribution after the Kickstarter's done? That's right, yeah, they'll hit, uh, they'll hit distribution so you'll be able to buy them in retail. All of the expansions? Yeah, I need to talk with Chris to, to find out exactly how we're going to be packaging it up, uh, but I believe that uh, the, so the, if, you're, if you're backing the Kickstarter, you'll get the whole thing as one big bundle. Um, but w when uh, it hits retail, you'll have a, a base game, and then you'll have an expansion. And do you think that the Thunderbirds is going to be rivaling Pandemic on the People's Choice for solo games? Oh God, I, I know better than to make any kind of predictions. <laughs> we'll have to see. I don't know. All right, well, thank you for meeting with me and talking about Thunderbirds a little bit. What's next for Matt Laycock? Well, uh, I've also got uh, Pandemic Legacy coming out this, this fall, and another project uh, that has yet to be announced uh, should be coming out later this year. Also, uh, Pandemic State of Emergency is debuting next month. This is the third expansion for the base game of, of Pandemic. Um, and then we'll see what, uh, what happens after that. Looking forward to uh, coming up with some new games. Sounds exciting. Is there somewhere people can follow you? Yeah, you can go to leacock.com. I just relaunched my website, and I've got a new blog up there, and uh, all the games are, are up and described right there. So leacock.com. And is that where they can go to find out about Thunderbirds? Sure, there's a page devoted to Thunderbirds. There is a uh, blog post there that you can uh, check out that talks about the rules and, and how to comment on them. And there's also a link over to the Kickstarter. Very exciting. Looking forward to seeing it fun. Great, thank you. Thank you. All right, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Um, thanks for doing that, Julius. So now we're going to look at a couple of games designed by Matt Leacock. First is Forbidden Island. This game was was published in 2010 by GameRight Games. So in this game, the island in question was ruled by an ancient race that had the ability to harvest elemental energies, but they disappeared some centuries ago, and the island had remained undiscovered up until now. The bad news is that unfortunately the you're on the island, and it started sinking. I personally think the island must be cursed or something. But you've now got to find the four treasures, these four elemental treasures, and get off the island before it sinks. Okay, so this game was very nicely produced. It comes in a, in a tin, which actually I've got mixed feelings about tins because they don't stack well, but I have to admit they look really nice. It also has some other nice quality components. Inside the box, you're going to get 24 island tiles. These represent the island itself, and you're going to play them on the table as a border map. Um, these tiles are actually double-sided because as the island is sinking you flip it over to the back side to show it's starting to be submerged. That, that portion of the island is. All the tiles have really nice art. Each tile has unique art and they have a lot of different evocative titles like um, the Cliffs of Abandon is, is one example that comes to mind. There's a few different types of tiles. There's one that's a helicopter landing to win the game, you have to make it to the helicopter landing and get off the island from there. So you got to make sure that tile never sinks. There's also the eight treasure tiles, which are the locations where you could get the, pick up the treasures at. There's four different treasures I mentioned, and there's two tiles per treasure. There's also six starting tiles, one per player color, and there's a bunch of other just locations that don't have any specific significance. Okay. One awesome thing I think about the production of the game 
is those treasure pieces. I know Matt Laycock talked in the interview we just had with him about how he loved how people would like to pick up and play with those treasure pieces. It really brings the whole production to a different level of quality, and it looks really nice on the table. That's right, yeah. The, these treasures are, are fantastic. There's four, four treasures. Each is a different color representing the different elements, and they're 3D sculpted figures. They're about an inch tall each, and they're all just very nice and very different. And they really do add a lot to the game. So you're also going to get some treasure card, no, some location cards. There's 24 location cards, one corresponding to each treasure, or I'm sorry, to each location. And these cards are bad news. These are the ones that kind of drive the island forward into sinking. And I'll tell you more about that a little later. There's also treasure cards. You're going to collect these and use them to, to collect the treasures later. This is sort of almost, to me, in my mind, it's almost like a rummy game where you're drawing cards and discarding cards that you don't want. And you need a set of four. It gets tricky because there's a hand limit of five cards. So you, you always want to, you're trying to get a certain type of treasure now, but you also want to hang on to the other ones because you're going to need them soon. But you can't. <laughs> Besides, the treasure deck also has a couple other cards. There's a couple that give you some extra temp- one-time abilities, like a Shore Up, which lets you... Re, um, refresh two of the submerged tiles and there's a helicopter card that lets you move around the island for free but you also need one of those to win the game and then there's the dreaded waters rise card every time you draw one of these you're going to take that location deck shuffle it up the discarded location shuffle them up and put them back on top of the deck and this adds a lot of attention to the game and I think specifically that mechanism right there The uh, besides that there's six character cards and six pawns to go with them. Each character has a different ability, and generally the abilities are, for example, one person could shore up submerged tiles diagonally, another one could move through sunken tiles easily, a pilot can fly from any location to any other location on the island, no matter how far apart they are, and so on. Um, And then there's also the water level meter, which is just a little track, a little, like a gauge to keep track of how high the water level is. And basically what this means is the higher the water level is, the more cards you're flipping every turn, the faster the island is sinking. So that's everything in the game. It's it's actually not a whole lot. It's a very small box. The setting up the game is really easy. You're going to play, pull out the 24 tiles and lay them out randomly on the table in a diamond shape. Then you're going to choose the characters you're going to play with. You're going to draw six location cards from the location deck after you shuffled it. And the six cards you, the six locations you've drawn, you're gonna flip these tiles over, and they're now submerged. If if you draw one of these again, and it's already submerged. That tile goes away from the game, and it is now sunken completely, and cannot be recovered whatsoever. Um, that's something bad. You want to avoid that, especially for the important locations. Um, finally, you're gonna pass out two treasure cards to each player, so you're gonna start with something already. The the gameplay is pretty basic. Each turn, each player players are gonna go in order. And you know, I'm describing a multiplayer game, but if you're playing solitaire, you're probably gonna want to play multiple characters. So you'll play each character one at a time. The turn for each character, you're gonna get three action points, and you have four different actions you could choose from. You can move a space, you could shore up a location, which basically means flip it back from the submerged to the above water side. You could collect a treasure, which you do by being at the treasure's location space, one of its two spaces and then turning in four cards of that treasure type. And then um, the final action is to give another character on your space any number of loca- any number of treasure cards you have. 
And this is really important because, you know, you might find that you have two of the treasure cards and the other character has the other two treasure cards you need to get completed. So you guys got to exchange somehow. So once you've taken your three actions, so the next thing you're going to do is you're going to draw two treasure cards. If you have more than five, you need to discard down to five. Five is the hand limit, and you can never have more than five cards in your hand. And if any of them is a Water's Rise card, that's bad news. You're going to take all the discarded location cards, shuffle them, put them back on top of the deck. Which means, if it happens at the beginning of the game, just like it did to me the last time I played, the the first card I drew was a Water's Rise card, and I had six locations I had just flipped over. I had not had time to do anything about them. I immediately shuffled those back in and drew two of them again and immediately just sunk them and took them out of the game. Um, and so that that's a bad thing about having these Water's Rise cards. Your location cards go back to the top of the deck, and the stuff that's already submerged is likely to sink. And that's it. That's a full round. Once you finish that with a character, you'll go on to the next character. Now that wonders, right, the water level rising mechanic where you take the cards that are at risk and you make them even more risky is a good mechanic. It raises a level of tension to the game and it makes a lot of decisions about where your risk is coming from. It's not an entirely unpredictable risk because of that. You know where things are going to continue to be risky, and that helps you deal with it and also predict it and makes the decision to the game more enjoyable. That's right. It, it really does, and it just adds a nice level of tension. As soon as start, stuff starts to to get submerged and, and you know you need to deal with it soon, it, it adds a little excitement. So this game, this is a fun game. It's very light, very, very light, but you could really compare it a lot to Pandemic, which is obviously a relative of this game. Pandemic is older, and it seems like Matt went and then took the the stuff that he learned from making Pandemic and made it in the game that was much simpler and much more accessible. Um, which in a way was surprising, because Pandemic isn't that complicated. Though it does have a lot of different things. Um... So one of the like things Matt that said, he wanted to try and make a gateway to a gateway with this game. Okay, I think he succeeded. <laughs> the um, one of the things that's simpler is there's fewer types of treasure cards. The equivalent in Pandemic are the location cards you're collecting to cure a region. In there, there's different cards that are different cities and all that, and they each you know you could use them a couple different ways. These treasure cards they have one one use only, which is to collect four and turn them in for a treasure. So so they're much simpler. There's also fewer types of actions in this game. This one only has four, and I believe Pandemic has about six or so. Now, I'll, I'll say this game is more fun if you're playing with multiple characters. I know, and that's probably true about a lot of cooperative games. I know some people don't like to play multiple characters, but what you find is that when you are playing multiple characters, the different abilities that each character have really interact with each other really well. And you lose a lot the fewer characters you have. Um, I found my... My uh, sweet spot is about three characters, and that's worked really well. Also, the game is its really easy, honestly. Um, at the normal setting, I, I win it just about every single time, but you can adjust the difficulty by just starting with a higher water level, which means you're drawing more location cards each turn from the beginning. Um, another thing that, as the water level rises, if it reaches a certain point in the game, at a certain height, the game ends and you've lost. So yeah, so this is a really light game. It, it plays really fast. It's not very thinky at all. This is a, a great game if it's late in the evening and you just want to pull something out and play for a half hour right before going to bed without starting to get your, your wheels spinning again at bedtime. 
I also think that the level of quality of this production can't be ignored. Like I said before, the game presents itself very well on the table, and it's just a joy to look at those little pieces, the the treasures and the art on this game, and just let it sit on your table even for a little bit. It's a very nice thing just to have placed out. Like you said, the game is basic, but it's enjoyable to, to a degree because of that, just because of the simplicity of it. It doesn't require much effort. It It just moves around. Very simple to play. Yeah. That's a good point about the art. Of all the games in this family that I've played by Matt Leacock, the, this one I think has the nicest art on those tiles. And I enjoy that about it. But uh, let's jump on to the next game. So the next game we're going to talk about is another of Matt Leacock's titles, Forbidden Desert. Forbidden Desert is also in the same difficulty level as Forbidden Island. It was published in 2013 by Game Ride Games. Now, in Forbidden Desert, you're a band of adventurers who are attempting to recover a legendary flying machine from deep in the ruins of an ancient desert city. Now, unfortunately, when you were coming in, the desert rose up and struck you down, destroying your aircraft and forcing you to find the flying machine or die. If you do not find the flying machine and escape before the desert consumes you, well, the desert has consumed you. Now, in Forbidden Desert... There's three ways for you to lose the game. The first and most basic way of losing the game is you run out of water. You have died from thirst. Every character is going to come equipped with a certain amount of water, which you'll keep track with a slider placed on your character card. When you lose enough water, you've lost the game. The second way of losing the game is if the sand overwhelms you. The, each turn of the game, the game will act against you by forcing you to put more sand out on the t- out on the tiles. Now we'll get back to why that happens in a moment. But if you place out all of the sand tiles that the game provides you with, then the desert has overcome you in a sandstorm and you are lost forever. The last way to die is there's a tracker which tracks how fast the sand comes out on the board. If that tracker reaches the top of it, you will lose. But, if you manage to uncover the the flying machine before any of these happen, you will be able to take the flying machine, assemble its components on the launch pad, and escape the desert with your uh, treasure in tow. Do you know if it's supposed to be the same um, ancient empire in this game? Nobody says one way or the other. I'm sure we can say that it is, but nobody says one way or the other. <laughs> Let me describe the components of the game. In this game, it again comes with 24 double-sided tiles. On one side, you have desert tiles, and on the other side, you have the ancient city tiles. The idea of the game is that you will go around and you will excavate the tiles by flipping them over and spending an action to show the city on the other side, and you will get certain benefits for that. You also have sand markers, which are X's, that you'll place on the desert tiles. In order to excavate a tile, you'll be required to remove all the sand markers from a, t- from a tile before you're able to flip it over and excavate it. The game also comes with the flying machine parts, which are the four parts and the actual base of the flying machine, all of which you'll have to find and assemble in this case, literally assemble, in order to escape the game. Now, as with the other game right game for Ben Island, again, the quality of production on this one is pretty incredible. The game comes with four tokens, I'm sorry, not four tokens, four pieces of this flying part, three full plastic pieces and one metal piece, which you can literally construct together to make the game. I know there's been a few times when I'm playing this game and my little kids will come out and they'll start putting together the pieces of the game, which unfortunately sometimes means that 
In addition to the difficulty of the game, I also have the difficulty of remembering which pieces I've actually uncovered by this point in time. But, putting that ship together, it just makes it look very cool. It's a very nice production, having that physical ship on the table. That is a cool ship. The last piece of the of the components is the sandstorm level meter. Now then, this meter, unlike with Forbidden Desert, actually goes into a base, so it sits upright as opposed to lying down, but it has the same track on the right side. You start at whichever level it is, depending upon the difficulty you have, and as more sand cards come out of the deck, so then, which I haven't discussed yet, but as more sand cards come out of the deck, so that forces you to put it up higher and higher. The cards in the decks, there's three types of cards. There's the Storm deck, the Equipment deck, and the Adventurer cards. Everyone will get an Adventurer card at the beginning of the game, which gives them special power. And then the two other decks you'll draw from the, throughout the course of the game. With the Storm deck, that's what lets the Storm move around. There is a center of the Storm, and then the Storm deck tells you where to move that center around. So the center, it'll say move two spaces up or two spaces down or left and right. And as it moves around, so you have to put a new sand piece out wherever it is that it says. And depending on how high up the sandstorm level you are is how many cards you'll draw. Very similar to Pandemic and Forbidden Island, where it's telling you how fast things will accelerate. And the, uh, that's, the center of the storm is really a lot like a sliding piece puzzle where there's a missing tile on the board. And you're sliding the other tiles in to fill that gap as you're moving the storm around. Now, I know I've had some debate with some other people about how to interpret the storm deck, because the way the storm deck has, it has a blank spot and arrows pointing away from it. And I've gotten into debates from some people about whether or not that means you move the storm to the left, or that means that you move the empty space to the left. However it is that you play, as long as you're consistent, it's perfectly (laughs) fine with me. The equipment deck is one of the ways that you get to fight back against the sta- against the sand. It's not the tr- it's not the treasures. It's not the ship. It's some extra special abilities, bonus abilities that you can find. Sometimes when you flip over the tiles after excavating them, they'll show you uh, one of the, a clue to one of the treasures. But sometimes they won't, and they'll just give you a piece of equipment. Now these equipments can let you clear out all of the sand, or they let you use a jetpack to move to a different tile, or they can be some extra water. You can use those as special bonuses in-game to give you a helping hand. The last type of card on the Storm deck is the Sun Beats Down cards. Now, each adventurer card, like I said, has a track on the right side where you track how much water you have. The way that's consumed is with a number of the thirst beats, the Sun Beats Down cards, which make you more thirsty and consume your water. As those come out, you may run out of water. Now, then, the, some of the tiles will give you water back. So when you excavate them, you may be able to get water. But if you're not doing it faster, then that storm can beat on you, then that sun can beat on you, you're going to run out of water and die. So the way the game is played is each person gets four actions this time. And then after the, everyone takes the four actions, so you'll draw storm cards. The main action that you'll do is you can move around. Now, then, most of the characters can only move right, left, up, and down. One character can move diagonal, but most of the time you can move right, left, up, and down. But as more sand tiles come out, they will block your way. So if you ever have two sand tiles down, and you'll also denote this by flipping over the sand tiles, which shows red on one side, so you can't cross it. But if you ever have two or more sand tiles on a spot, it's blocked and you can't move through block spaces unless you're the climber, one of the other special powers. 
The next action you can take is to remove sand markers from the tiles, and you can actually remove, in this game, from your tile or an adjacent tile. Even one of the powers lets you do a diagonal tile. And it's one action per sand marker removed. Now, this is the only way to unbury yourself or to unbury your way through to a tile where you want to excavate. Speaking of excavate, now excavate is almost the core action of the game. This is how you find new equipment, and this is how you find treasures, the parts to your flying machine. Every time you have a tile which doesn't have any sand markers, even if it just has one so you could cross it, but if you removed all the sand markers from the tile, you can excavate it for one action. And so you'll take the tile and you'll flip it over so that the city side is facing up. What you want to do is you want to keep showing it so that the icon stays in the lower right corner, and I'll explain why in a minute. But you want to maintain the orientation of all of the tiles to be the same. Once you've done that, so you can check and see what's on the other side. Some of the tiles, and most of the tiles, will give you a piece of equipment. And like I said, you can pick up that equipment for special things. But some of the tiles will give you a clue to a part. Each part, and there are four parts on a launch pad, each one of the parts will have two clues to it. And those two clues have arrows. One arrow is going up and down and one arrow is going right and left. And once you find a pair of them, so you'll trace across both arrows and see where they intersect. So you'll find the row and column, and then you'll see which tile they intersect on. And then you'll place one of the plastic pieces on that part, on that tile. And then even if the tile moves around again later, you can go over to that part and then pick up that part for another action. Once you have it picked up, it goes sort of in your communal inventory. And then if you've collected all four parts, you can head over to the launch pad, which is a different tile, which you first have to excavate, and put together the whole flying machine part there, and then take off, run away, flee the desert with your treasure in tow. <laughs> the last action, which is required in order to be able to make sure you don't get too thirsty, is you're able to share water, and you can also pass equipment. Now, this is actually a free action, very important. It's free action. If you're on an adjacent tile, I'm sorry, if you're on a same tile as someone, except for one character, if you're on the same tile as someone, you can share water and equipment for free. And so you can give one point of water to someone else, or you can give any of your equipment cards. This is very helpful when you're trying to plan out where multiple characters can go. Now, again, for this game, it doesn't actually come with a solo-specific method of playing, but the easiest way to do it is by having multiple characters and tracking who has what equipment and who has how much water, and trying to strategically plan out where it is they should go in order to be able to uncover the tiles. Yeah, I, I find this one to be a losing battle, personally. The, the few times I've played it, just really hard, and I'm constantly fighting to just dig the sand out and, and not get sunk underneath, which always fails. <laughs> I find this game to be very enjoyable. Yeah. It's still a simple game. There's not that many actions to do. You have the chance to use the equipment for special bonus actions, which I guess for younger players would might be a little bit more difficult than something like Forbidden Island, but this one's much more in my wheelhouse if I want a very simple game. The game doesn't have that much complexity to it, but it has a, a good amount of decision-making, and I do like the end mechanic of trying to find both clues. It's very exciting when you find a first clue, and you're hunting and hunting and hunting for that second clue, 
sometimes I feel like I've excavated every single tile, and you don't need to excavate all of the gear tiles, all the ones that give you gear and equipment. You do need to excavate every single one that gives you a clue. And so sometimes you get lucky and you won't have to excavate all those gear ones. I feel like every time I play this game, I end up having to excavate every single tile to get that one last clue before the storm overwhelms me. I also know that for when the sun beats down on you, trying to keep track of both making sure you don't have too much sand kill you, making sure that you don't run out of water, and still finding the clues, it's a, it's not that much to balance. It's more to balance, and it's enjoyable to keep it all balanced. It's difficult. It makes it very, very difficult trying to make sure that you don't die of thirst, don't die of sand, and still get everything that you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I really like about the game, this game, is that the uh, the treasure pieces or the ship pieces are actually used in the game. In Forbidden Island, you have them on the side of the board, and when you collect them, you move from the side of the board to in front of you. But they don't do anything. In this game, once you've actually triangulated where the treasure is with the two cards, you actually put the treasure on the board, and now it's an active piece on the board, which is great. I also like the special abilities of the characters. Usually I will draw them out at random just to have it. And I mm-hmm. usually, actually, when I'm playing solo, I usually play with three characters. Okay. And I'll draw them out at random and play it. And I know that with some characters, it's a lot easier. One of the characters is the water carrier, who has the ability to get extra water from the water tiles, the ones that give you water. Whereas everyone else can only draw water once. The water carrier can keep coming back there and keep getting more water. I find that the water carrier actually makes the game a lot easier when it comes out. Sometimes I'll redraw because I want a more difficult game without the water carrier. But being able to draw those out at random and how different they all are, even for a game as simple as this, makes it very enjoyable to play. Yep, that's right. And there's also a lot of randomness in the uh, the way the tiles are so played out because you play them on the board face on, you have no idea what's where. And that adds a lot to the replayability also. Personally, I think like I think it's probably clear. Between Forbidden Island and Forbidden Desert, I definitely prefer Forbidden Desert over the two. It adds more difficulty. Again, you can make the game more difficult by starting higher up on the track and making more of those storm cards come out quicker. So it can be very difficult. But I find that there's more decision-making that occurs when you're having to balance those different ways to die. And also the fact that, like you said, that the treasures actually come into the game and will move around, that clue dynamic is very fun for me. Yep, I agree. I I agree. It is a fun mechanic. Um, I do think I like this game better, too. It's definitely more puzzly and requires a lot more thinking, and I enjoy that about it. Though I I do find that um, it's easier than Pandemic, but I think the amount of thinking that you put into it might be about the same. In my opinion, this game has less thinking than something like Pandemic or a more complicated co-op. It's still a pretty simple game to play. It has some decision in it. It definitely has a tenseness to it. But I put it more on the lower uh, lower side of complexity, which I'm happy to have a copy of in my personal collection. Well, right. That, I mean, that's, a, that's a neat game, but it's hard. Personally, I have not come close to winning. Are you playing it under the normal difficulty or, or harder or what? Yeah, there's four levels of difficulty for this game. So there's, I think it's Novice, Normal, Elite, and Legendary. If I'm feeling like having a very short game, I will put it on Legendary. <laughs> legendary difficulty is very difficult. Um, and especially since you're starting with so many cards, usually on Legendary, before you get all the way through one deck, you're already up to drawing four cards from the deck, which makes the game a lot more difficult. It's very easy to lose to Sand on that one. I find myself often unable to cope. 
I tend to play the game actually on Elite. I think I win with Elite probably about a third of the time, maybe less. I think on Normal I usually beat the game, though. Wow, okay. Uh, it could be could be I've played the game a lot of times, um, but I think on Normal I usually do beat the game. I think the next time I try it, I'm going to put it on Easy or Novice because Normal is just too hard for me. <laughs> I've only played it three times total, though. Two solitaire and once wins in a group. I unfortunately don't keep track of it. I know that I've played it quite a number of times. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes with my children, as I mentioned. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if they count as more than solo, though. <laughs> it's like adding sandworms to the game. It at very least adds a good level of randomness to the game. <laughs> Yeah. So that's Forbidden Island and Forbidden Desert, both by Matt Laycock, and I hope you'll go ahead and check them out sometime. Hi guys, Julius here. I wanted to put a new segment in the show, which I'm going to be calling Solo Stories. So for this game, I personally am a fan of, I'm sure you've heard of it, Solitaire Games on Your Table. This is a large geek list where... Together we game alone, everyone is invited to come on here and check out other people's stories and what it is that they're interested in playing, and actually playing over the weeks playing solo. If you're ever looking for an interesting game or want to hear about other people's experience with it, or simply someone else's stories about themselves, come join the rest of the community over on the Solitaire Games on your table geek list. Now, I wanted to specifically call out some. I know that as I'm reading through it, a bunch of times I'll see some stories or something else on there that I just find a great great story, either about an awesome win, a crushing lose, or someone else's story of what it is that the game meant to them, a narration of the story, or sometimes simply a story about where it is that you found a game. I really like these stories, and I like hearing from the rest of the community. So I browsed through Solitaire Games in your Table Geek list, and I wanted to collect some of these excellent solo stories. I welcome anyone who has a good story. You can feel free to email it to me. My email address is julius at oneplayerpodcast.com. Or you can find me on BoardGameGeek as JLBird. But also, you can either email it to me or just directly post it to Solitaire Games on your table. Go ahead and post it on a geek list, and hopefully I'll be able to find it. Every episode, I want to try and get one story and try and read it out to you guys and tell you guys a good story of someone else's gaming experiences. So, for this podcast, I wanted to pick a story by Dan Lickos, D. Lickos on on BGG, who played the game Shadows of Brimstone, City of the Ancients, and decided to write up his experience in it in a story, and I was going to read it out to you guys here, if I may. The two men enter the mine. Redfeather moves ahead, eager to prove his story to Gossler. He turns the corner, momentarily out of sight from Gossler. When Pete turns the corner, a great crab-like creature lurks in the corner, feeding on something on the ground. Redfeather fires his rifle masterfully, getting off three shots in seconds, two of which connect center mass and the third blasting off a claw. The creature drops before it can make a move towards the pair. What of the world Peter barely had time to comprehend what he saw. Come, stay together, Red Redfeather beckons. As they wind their way deeper into the mine, Peter's overwhelmed by a horrible stench and begins to retch so violently his vomit is blood-streaked. Up here, John leads, unfazed. A glowing aura around the bend is bouncing its light off the cavern wall. Turning the corner, Peter can't believe his eyes. A swirling pool of light suspended near the wall of the room. What is that? he asks. 
the door to the evil spirit world that has opened and remains so. The black crystals in this mine draw evil here. Come, the deposit is this way. The men enter a final cavernous room, with a huge pile of bones, animal, human, unhuman strewn about, and a vein of black crystal visible on the far wall. A strange clicking sound alerts the two men. A half-dozen or so of the huge crustaceous spiders, with huge gaping mouths in their abdomens, skitter with great speed at the two men. With no time to react, both are overwhelmed. Two of the spiders manage to knock Pete to one knee as they rear up, kicking with their forelegs and gnashing with their strangely placed mouths. Two more swarm on John. Both men take large gashes from the claws on the spider's kicking forelegs. Redfeather lets a series of bullets fly, dropping two of the spiders. Likewise, Pete unleashes his shotgun and also drops two. The spiders seem to, don't seem to know what is good for them, and the remaining two clamber over the corpses of their brethren, but both meet the same fate. The men, victorious, approach the deposit. Redfeather runs his hand across it, but suddenly John pulls his hand back as if it was hot cause some sort of pain to him. I want to thank Dan Lykos for going ahead and publishing this to the Solitaire Games in Your Table story. I know that for me it really evoked the sense of experience that you get from playing a game of Shadows of Brimstone. I know he also posted one picture which shows the minis in the game going up against this horde of spiders before entering the room and collecting their treasure. And I know for me it really evoked a set of theme and narrative that I like in the game uh, Shadows of Brimstone, and I thought that I could go ahead and help you guys to also understand that. Now, in order to encourage this, I know that Albert and I talked about a set of dice, special commemorative dice from the One Player podcast. Anyone who gets their story told on our show, we want to send them a thank you, and go ahead and send them a dice. So we're going to be reaching out to Dan Lykos and telling him about this and offering him one of the dice. But I want to let everyone else know that if we do go ahead and read your story, so we'd also like to send you a special commemorative one-player podcast die until, you know, hopefully we won't run out of them. But until we run out of them, we'd like to commemorate the occasion and send it to anyone who gets their story read. So please, if you have a good story for me, please either post it on the Solitaire Games in Your Table geek list or uh, send it to me via email or message or whichever other way you want to get in contact with me. Yeah, that's a great idea. Thank you for sharing that story. That that was really, really well written and well read. Um, thanks to Dan for that. The The other thing, one more thing is uh, I've got a game I'm going to give away. We haven't given away a game in a while, but I've got a copy of The Battle of Red Cliffs, which is a TZQ variant. Basically, it's sort of like a Mahjong. It's a set collection game, and it has a solitaire variant in it. So I'm going to go ahead and give this away on the show. If you want to win a copy of the game, I was thinking maybe you should send in... Let's say, come up with a game idea that you think would be really cool. Just a theme. I don't care about the mechanics so much. Well, I mean, I do, especially if you want to make it. But, um... Send in a, a game with a neat theme, and we'll pick a winner from that. Wait, are you asking people to actually draft a whole game? Just a theme. Just come up with a theme for a game. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Why not? You know, if somebody wants this, it could be, you know, as simple as Lovecraftian Dungeon Crawler, I guess. Even better, much more uh, involved in that. Lovecraftian Dungeon Crawler, where you're traveling through In's Mouth, trying to recreate the story. <laughs> Which is, I'm still looking for. But no matter how complicated the theme, go ahead and send it to us, and uh, that counts as an entry. That's right. Send those entries in to albert at oneplayerpodcast.com. We're going to be closing this contest 
in at the end of March on March 31st. So go ahead and guess your entries in by then. Thank you. Okay, and that's it. That's a that's a show. Thank you everyone for listening. So we do have some new contact information for you guys because we got a new a domain name, OnePlayerPodcast.com. You guys can feel free to reach out to us. I'm Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com. And I'm Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com. And you can also find our brand new Twitter feed, at OnePlayerPodcast. So you can reach out to us on Twitter or follow us there. I'll try and give you guys some special news and updates on solo games as I see them over there. Or you can just reach out to me for a chat. And you can always find us on BGG also. I'm JL Bird on BGG. And I'm Fractaloon. Hope to see you guys soon, and thank you for listening. The intro music is copyright Angus and is protected under a Creative Commons license and can be found at gemendo.com. The show is published under Creative Commons, non-commercial, share-alike license. Thanks for listening.